I invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to Psalm 96. Psalm 96. We recently recently finished up going through the Heidelberg Catechism, and um, I thought we would turn our attention uh, now to a short series in the Belgic Confession, uh, specifically looking just at Article 1 of the Belgic Confession under the topic, Knowing God. Uh, As we're going to read in a moment after Psalm 96, Belgic Confession Article 1 uh, lays out for us who we believe God to be as he has revealed himself in his word. Our knowledge of God is dependent on God himself making himself known. And God has made himself known in his holy word. And so Belgian Confession Article 1 lays out for us the various attributes or perfections that we ascribe to God as he has revealed them to us. And so what is foundational and what is uh, most central to our lives as Christians is knowing our God, knowing our covenant God. And so we're going to begin uh, this uh, series by considering the opening Um, attributes of God being single, simple, and spiritual. What do we mean by those things? But first, we're going to read Psalm 96, uh, the whole psalm, beginning at verse 1. This is the holy and inspired word of God. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him, all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar in all that fills it. Let the field exult in everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. So far from God's holy word. We're going to turn now to the Belgic Confession. And you'll find that in the back of the hymnal we sang from on page 855. And we'll read this first article together. Article 1, The Only God. We all believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that there is a single and simple spiritual being whom we call God, eternal, incomprehensible, invisible, unchangeable, infinite, almighty, completely wise, just, and good, and the overflowing source of all good. So far from the catechism, or rather from the confession. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, As many of us know, the Bible begins with God creating all things and specifically creating us as his people in his image. And he creates us in his image in order that we might know him, that we might love him, and that we might serve him with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind. That's where the Bible begins, with a God creating a people to worship him, to know him. And the Bible ends in that glorious new Jerusalem, 
where the inhabitants of that city behold the face of God and have his name written on their foreheads. A people who now know their God. And so from the beginning to the very end of the Bible, the intention of God in creating us is that we might know him from beginning uh, to end. And all that comes in between in the history of God's redemption, all that comes in between is one great revelation of who God is that we might know, serve, and worship him. That is the intent of the Bible. It's what the Bible serves to do. In many ways, this service is unto the very covenant that God has established with us as his people. I will be your God. You will be my people, right? That is the theme throughout the scriptures. And in the heart of that then, right, if God will be our God and if we will be his people, then at the heart of that is knowledge, knowing our God. At the, at the very midpoint and the high point of that revelation, that covenant revelation of God, comes, of course, the Emmanuel, God with us, Christ himself. And just in a few broad strokes, right, we can see the entirety of the scriptures laid before us from the beginning to the end with Christ as its center, as its midpoint, as that which holds all of it together. God with us. I will be your God. You will be my people. And so then there's no more important thing for us than as the people of God than to know our God. It's why the Belgian Confession begins where it does. We all believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that there is a single and simple spiritual being whom we call God. And this is our confession. It is the foundation of our lives. Now, before we jump into, because we don't have a ton of time, um, we can spend hours discussing each of these aspects of who God is. But before we jump into discussing what it means that God is a single, simple, spiritual being, I first want us to think about three things regarding the knowledge of God that we have. What does it mean to know God? How ought we to know God? And the first thing, very briefly, is that we are, as we come to know God, to approach him with humility, with humility. We recognize that left to ourselves, we could come to no knowledge of God. God remains a mystery far off from us. And therefore, if we are to ever know God, God must, as we've said before, reveal himself to us. And therefore, that instills in us great humility to say that it's not a matter of me working it out who God is, But rather, it's me receiving God's revelation of who he is, of submitting myself to his word and recognizing that all that I can know of God, God must have made it known to me. And so when I come before God, I come before him with humility, not with pretension, not with my own opinions, not thinking so highly of myself, but rather with humility to receive of God, to learn of him, of who he truly is. And then to be corrected of that as well, right? As sinners, we come before God with certain preconceptions. We come before God often with a God made in our own image. And so God reveals himself that we might know who he truly is. And therefore, when our opinion of who God is and God's revelation of who he is contradict, God's revelation, of course, wins out. God reveals himself to us. And so we approach this knowing God with deep humility coming before a great mystery that has been revealed. But not only with humility, secondly, we come before God with great confidence. We come before God with great confidence, knowing that his revelation of himself is true and trustworthy, 
that what God has revealed about himself is not arbitrary. It's not something that will change, as we'll speak about God's immutability in later uh, sermons. But what God has revealed about himself is true and reliable, and it truly is and corresponds to who he is. And therefore, we can have, with great humility, also great confidence that when we speak about who God is according to his word, that we speak truthfully and we speak truly of who God is and who he is also for us. The third thing that we are to expect and and the kind of posture we have when we come to know God is not only humility and confidence, but also joyful expectation. Joyful expectation when we come to know God. Jesus in his high priestly prayer in John 17 tells us that to know God is eternal life. To know God is the totality of our salvation is caught up in that reality. To know him is eternal life. And therefore, when God reveals himself to us, and we come to know who God is through that revelation, we come in that to find God to be our salvation, to be the one who transforms us and changes us. And therefore, when God reveals himself to us, he reveals himself not that we might speculate, but he reveals himself, as Calvin says, in power. To quote Calvin, he says that we are called to a knowledge of God, not that knowledge which content with empty speculation merely flits in the brain, but that which will be sound and fruitful if we duly perceive it, and if it takes root in the heart. For the Lord manifests himself by his powers, the force of which we feel within ourselves and the benefits of which we enjoy. Because God reveals himself in power and makes himself known in his acts and what he has done for us in creation and in redemption, then to know him is to have a joyful expectation that we will find in him our all in all. Herman Boving puts it this way, he says, God was for those of old and for us today not a cold concept, which they then proceeded to rationally analyze. Rather, he was a living, personal force, a reality infinitely more real than the world around them. Indeed, he was to them the one eternal, worshipful being. They reckoned with him in their lives. They lived in his tent, walked as if always before his face, served him in his courts, and worshipped him in his sanctuary." God was to them, and notice all of these descriptions that should um, bring to mind various Bible passages for you. God was for them a king, a lord, a valiant one, a leader, a shepherd, a savior, a redeemer, a helper, a physician, a man, a father. All their bliss and well-being, their truth and righteousness, their life and mercy, their strength and power, their peace and rest, they found in him. He was a sun and a shield to them, a buckler, a light and a fire, a fountain and a wellhead, a rock and a shelter, a high refuge and tower, a reward and a shadow, a city and a temple. For the saint heaven and all its blessedness and glory would be void and stale without God. And when he lives in communion with God, he cares for nothing on earth, for the love of God far transcends all other goods." It's this reality as God has revealed himself that undergirds Jesus' claim that to know him is eternal life. It is the totality of our salvation. Everything that is good is founded in him. And so as we approach this idea of knowing God, 
in this new series were to do so with humility, with confidence, and with joyful expectation. And that being said, just by way of introduction, and much more could be said, but for the sake of time, we need to move on. We're going to press in to think about what it then means, as the Belgian Confession opens up, by telling us that there is a single and simple spiritual being whom we call God. And so we'll take those uh, each separately, though they kind of intertwine and overlap with one another. So first, we confess that there is a single being whom we call God. That's just another way of saying that there is only one God. That, that the nature of divinity belongs to no other, whether in heaven or on earth, than to God alone. God alone is the one uh, who exists on a level, as a kind in and of himself. There is no other God. So we read about in Psalm 96 and all throughout the scriptures as well, right? In Psalm 96, there we hear that in verse 5, all the gods of the people are worthless idols. That's to say that they are not living. They're not true gods. Yes, they are worshipped. Yes, they are looked to by people, but they are worthless idols. And idols throughout the scriptures are dead and lifeless, and those who worship them become like them. And so the contrast here then is that the idols and the gods of the peoples are not real. They are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens and the earth. Right? Do you see the contrast here? Compared to the worthless idols whom the world around us worships, God stands out alone as the creator, as the one who can act, the one who can do, the one who can save his people. God stands in contrast here in Psalm 96 and throughout the entirety of Scripture as the one who alone is God and the one alone then who is worthy of praise. The great confession of the people of God in the Old Testament was the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. This was the confession of God's people, that there were no other gods alongside of him. There were no other gods who contested with the one God, but God alone is God. Boving says, God is the one God and the only God, only if no one and no thing can be what he is alongside of him or under him. And so throughout the scriptures, we know that this is affirmed. And so what then does this mean for us that God is one, that there is only one God? Well, this helps to direct our lives, right? Our lives are often pulled in many different directions, things to trust in, things to follow, things to devote ourselves to. But through all of the chaos, this word cuts through, and it tells us that there is one God who is worthy of our devotion. There is one God who is worthy of our lives to give them and devote them unto him. And therefore, it gives us singularity of purpose that our whole lives as we live in this world would be devoted to the one true and living God. It causes us also then to detest all idolatry, to say and not to put anything alongside of the one true and living God to trust in or to seek our refuge or our comfort in other than the one true God. And it calls us then also to bind our whole soul, as Petrus van Maastricht had put it, to bind our whole soul to the one God. As Psalm 73 puts it, one of my favorite verses, Whom have I in heaven but you? 
and there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Right? The foundation of that confession is that there is only one God. What a joyful confession then to speak of God as being singular, there being only one God. And finally, this also, this attribute also calls us then to pursue unity with one another. In Jesus' high priestly prayer, he prays that, the, that God's people, the people whom he is gathering together, would be one, even as God is one. And so as we think about God's singularity, and we think about binding our whole soul to him alone, it also then calls us in him to seek unity and concord with one another and with the body of Christ throughout this world. And so God is single, God is singular. Secondly, the Belgian Confession says, and again, much more can be said about all of these things. I'll probably keep saying that. Uh, but the second thing is that God is spirit. God is spiritual. And we can define this by its contrast, right? To say that God is spirit is to say that God does not possess a body. Now you might say, well, but the scriptures often speak of God's eyes and God's hands and God's feet and God's heart. Uh, seems to me that he has a body, if the scriptures apply that to God. Now, when we hear those various um, bodily attributes given to God, eyes, hands, feet, a heart, we're to recognize that those are figurative expressions. And the technical term, if you want a $10 word, is that they are anthropomorphisms. It comes from two Greek words, anthropos, meaning human or man, morph, meaning a form, right? And so it's a human form, a human way of speaking about who God is. And this is all part of the humility that we have in approaching who God is, because God has revealed himself in such a way that we might understand and comprehend. It's an act of condescension on his part. John Calvin says when God reveals himself to us, he lisps to us like a nurse would lisp to a little baby. And therefore, God reveals himself in a way that we might understand him. Though he does not possess a body, he speaks of himself with having eyes in order that we might know that he has knowledge of all things. Just as our eyes can see, so God has knowledge of the world around us. Scriptures speak of God's hands. To, to, to make us know and recognize that in his hands he possesses all strength and power. It all belongs to him. That his feet symbolize to us his presence everywhere. And his heart, his love for us, his people. It is not that God possesses a body, a spirit. He is invisible and immaterial. But rather, these things are human ways of speaking about who God is. And so when we confess that God is spirit, then what does that mean for our confession, for our life as his people? Well, when we confess that God is spirit, it teaches us how we ought to pray and what we ought to think about when we pray to God. That we're not to conceive of a human form that we are praying to, but rather we are to think about God as spirits. In a slight analogy, there's many shortfalls to this analogy, but in the same way we think about our own souls we are to think about God himself as immaterial, as spirit, even as we come before him in prayer. That God is spirit also rebukes hypocrisy in our lives. Hypocrisy is when our external actions, right, contradict what belongs truly inside of ourselves. God has made us spirit and body, and the two are meant to be aligned 
especially in our worship before God. And the fact that God is spirit means that he sees the heart. It means that he knows the heart. And therefore, when we come before him in worship, it's our lips are not just to praise him while our hearts are far from him, but rather our lips and our hearts together, our spirit and our body together are to worship him. He sees that and he knows that. And so when we confess that God is spirit, it it cuts off all hypocrisy. And this idea that God is merely pleased by external actions and external doings. Rather, he desires the heart. He sees the heart. And therefore, our worship must be worship that is in spirit and in truth. Worship that engages the heart and in which there is no falsity and no hypocrisy. And therefore, we are also then to devote our spirits, not only our bodies, but our spirits to God, our inner being to God himself. It's this very thing we confess in the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 1. I belong to Jesus Christ, body and soul, in life and in death. And so God is spirit. The third thing that we are to confess, according to the confession here, is that God is simple. Now, as we think about this, we recognize that when we say that God is simple, we're not saying that it means that he's easy to understand. No, God is a great mystery that reveals himself. And though we can understand things uh, on a very um, easy level, yet God is a great mystery that we are to flex our minds and our thoughts to understand and comprehend. But when we confess here that God is a simple being, we mean that God is not composed of various parts. It's not as if you take various parts and mix them together and then you have God. No, God is not composed of part. He he is simple. And therefore, what does this look like? What does this mean throughout the scriptures and for us as God's people? It means that when we think about God, we not only attribute to him adjectives that God is truthful and God is righteous and God is living and illuminating and loving and wise, right? He is those things. But more than that, More than being truthful, God is the truth. More than being righteous, God is righteousness. More than being living, God is life. More than illuminating, God is light. More than loving, God is love. More than wise, God is wisdom. All of these things have their source and their fountain in God. And so every expression of truthfulness and righteousness and living and illumination and loving and wisdom that we see around us ultimately has its source in God himself. He is the foundation of all things. And therefore also when we think about God in all the various manifold ways in which he has revealed himself to us, we are to think about it as in some sense a great diamond with various facets And that we're not to then pit various attributes of God against one another, as is often at the heart of false theologies. Overemphasizing the love of God that his holiness and justice falls away. Or overemphasizing the holiness of God that begins to contradict his love and his grace and his mercy. Rather, as we are to receive the wholeness of who God is, and to recognize that God's attributes are ultimately one and harmonized in his simple being. And what this means also for us, in a great sense, because God cannot be divided, it means that he cannot be any less perfect than he is or more perfect than he is. 
Right? If God cannot have anything added to him because he is simple and God cannot have anything subtracted from him, then it means that as perfect God, he cannot be anything less than perfect for us and in himself. It means also that because God cannot be divided, he is simple. It means that when he gives himself to us and according to his covenant promise, he gives not, and this is a beautiful thing, he gives not a part of himself, but his whole self to us. God cannot divide himself that here is a portion of who I am, but when he gives himself to us, his people, he gives his whole self to us. This is what Jesus prays for all throughout John 17. This is the confidence of God's people that we are caught up in the fellowship of God in which he gives himself to us to be our God and to be all of those things we listed earlier, our King, our Lord, our Valiant One, our Tower, our Refuge, our Strength, our Shield and our Buckler, our Son and our Righteousness. All of these things God gives to us in himself. And so while it might sound kind of out there to be like, well, God is a simple being without composition or parts, it has great implications for our religious life as his people. Because it tells us again that just as God has given his whole self to us, so then we are to give our whole selves to God in one simple act of devotion to God. That is to be the defining characteristic of our lives in covenant with God. He has given himself to us, withholding no part of himself, and therefore we ought to give our whole selves to God in one simple act of devotion unto him. And so then it is with humility, and it is with confidence, and it's with joyful expectation that we confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts that there is a single and simple spiritual being whom we call God. And this God has made himself all the more clearly known, of course, in the Lord Jesus Christ, whom to know is eternal life. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we stand uh, amazed and humbled uh, before your word, knowing that you, um, the God of creation and of redemption, Uh, the great mystery to us, left to ourselves. You have made yourself known. You've lisped to us as uh, your babies, as little children. And so, Father, as we have heard your word, we have come to think about uh, an aspect and a portion of who you are as a single and simple spiritual being. Uh, Father, may these attributes of who you are not just flit in our brains Uh, but may they duly transform and change us as we know you, our God. We thank you, Father, that you are our God. We are your people. We thank you for your covenant mercies to us in Christ. And it's in, in his name that we pray. Amen.